Hello and welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for April 11th, 2018. I'm your host, Bo Dewar. We started spring soccer season in the D.C. area with snow flurries. Pretty sure that was a first for me, coaching a game on Saturday with just little bits of snow flying around. It wasn't wasn't too much. It, the forecast earlier in the week had called for possibly 8 to 10 inches, and because this is low-level youth soccer and not a World Cup qualifier against Costa Rica, they surely would have canceled all our games. But no, we got the games in. We had fun. It was good. Not going to have too much of a rant today because we have two guests. Uh, and it's it's funny how this came together. It was one of those coincidences where I was in a Twitter discussion about futsal courts and what should be done to put in more futsal courts through the, through the country. Um, and I know that there are a lot of efforts to put in futsal courts or other small playing spaces, you know, just to convert spaces, to get us away from the notion that you have to create an entire soccer plex, which, you know, in in my town would be utterly impossible to do, uh, to have a viable playing space for soccer. And then I happened to be perusing uh, LinkedIn and saw a couple of connections of mine. Um, I had notifications for them, and I realized, wait a minute, they both work at the grassroots level. Um, One very specifically in futsal, one with an organization called Soccer in the Streets, and of course, futsal is a pretty big part of that. It's not the only surface they play on. In fact, you'll hear in the interview, pretty much any flat surface where you can put down a couple of goals and kick a ball around, they'll use. Um, and, you know, that's what you do to get people playing. And in each case, it's not just a function of getting people playing and getting exercise and opportunities for kids in underserved areas, uh, although that is certainly major part of it and you'll hear some good stories about that but they're developing players there are players that are going on to pro careers who are starting out kicking around in these small spaces and coming in through these uh, programs you know programs that lead the leagues that bring people in to soccer so you can still argue whether or not u.s soccer capital s the federation is doing enough that's fine I don't know um, after listening to this I'm starting to think they should just give a ton of money you know more money each year to the US Soccer Foundation and let the foundation give grants to these programs that are already on the ground and already existing you you wouldn't want to have US Soccer from Chicago suddenly come in and say alright well we're gonna start a program in Atlanta and not work with the organization in Atlanta that you're about to hear from that wouldn't make any sense because that you know this group is making a lot of progress, and so U.S. Soccer needs to find out. Well, what can we do to better support you? And in some cases, maybe nothing. Some of these programs are running pretty well. Um, of course, I'm talking with two people who I think are running some of the most successful programs. So maybe they don't need as much help as some other people do, uh, but they are getting support from various organizations, the foundation, U.S. Youth Soccer. So you're going to hear from both of them. Uh, Leslie Hammer is in the New York area, although her programs now extend um, beyond that area. And uh, she is basically a futsal specialist, and we're talking futsal from the grassroots to the professional level. And yes, I mean professional futsal. I mean, she is uh, in contact with 
Barcelona and your other European clubs that take futsal very seriously. And then the second person you'll hear from is Jason Longshore, who is the uh, color commentator now for Atlanta United. Uh, he has worked for the last, uh, I don't know how long, I should have asked him, <laughs> 10 or 15 years or so, with Soccer in the Streets, uh, which is an interesting program. Um, for those of you who follow pro soccer and have followed pro soccer for the last 30 years or so, it's interesting because that program bridges the gap between the time when indoor was king to the present day because it actually started as a program by the Atlanta Attack and has now not been taken over by but certainly supported by Atlanta United uh, as you'll hear in, in all this and so that I thought that was kind of neat the, it, and these are the people that I think we need to remember and celebrate a little bit the people who have really kept soccer's flame alive when there was not much support for it and they certainly deserve to have a pretty good say in where we go moving forward because and so it, as people look to burn down the entire US soccer establishment I don't know if you'd call either of these people establishment but you know if you're sweeping people away please don't sweep these people away um, I think everyone would agree these are good programs and it's simply a question of how best to support them so here we are. We're going to have uh, Leslie Hammer first and then Jason Longshore. So my name okay. is Leslie Hammer and um, I um, am a director at um, New York Futsal and U.S. Futsal Across America. And basically what we do is um, we um, are a, from the beginning, a grassroots um, football soccer development company or organization. And um, we started it because my husband, who is a doctor in, from South America, from Colombia, was a doctor for professional soccer um, and um, youth uh, soccer in Colombia and Brazil, and uh, director of the Gatorade um, uh, 5v5 um, in uh, South America. And when we had both done a lot of work in community service, I worked as a... Um, educator and the chairman of the school and we decided that as a way to give back to the community that we would start um, uh, with uh, soccer development programs for in the beginning at risk um, uh, children and um, as a way to um, keep them in school and involved in the sport and we started with uh, programs for the Children's Aid Society, um, sports and arts, and um, in other organizations. Um, we soon realized that um, small-sided soccer and football were the best ways of developing the players, and we started football, and we were able to 
lobby it and bring it into um, U.S. soccer, which um, took a lot. And um, we were um, we became a U.S. youth soccer um, uh, program, and we have been um, in grassroots. We got it from just community programs into the schools, and then into the clubs, and then into U.S. soccer. And as it's developed through the schools, we got it into the um, uh, public school programs and into the public school leagues. And we started a league, and now all of the clubs um, are involved in it. And, and this is in New York, correct? Most of the, uh, what you're describing now is in New York? We started in New York, mm-hmm. and we are now... Um, I also have a um, agency, and I do a lot of work in with professional clubs. So we expanded that um, in terms of doing events with professional players in um, other cities. So, for example, in L.A., we did L.A. Fest with the Mia Hamm Foundation in L.A. Galaxy. And um, we are um, starting a program in Colorado and now in Florida. Um, and we've um, worked with, um, I also represent some of the best players and coaches in the world for um, uh, futsal. And we've mm-hmm. brought um, some of those players over to play professional games with FC Barcelona, um, and that was in Orlando, Florida. Um, so basically, it's grown from um, from uh, players from five years old on into um, elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools professional clubs, and now we have gotten it into the universities as an intramural and club sport, and um, that seems to be growing fairly quickly just because of the amount of students that are interested and because it's not a varsity sport. So um, it's been able, we've been able to get it as a um, um into a lot of the um, universities, and um, we are hopefully starting a program in the fall with Columbia University and the Ivy League. So that's pretty much where we are right now. But so, in terms of facilities, are you having to kind of construct new ones, or are you sort of using existing? Paved areas. I mean, I, I, most elementary schools have a blacktop of some sort that is, you know, maybe an outdoor basketball court or used for something else. Uh, so, how are you able to to get facilities for your programs? Okay, well, football in the U.S. has primarily and especially in New York been a winter sport, um, and we use indoor schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, we are using high schools, universities, 
um, public schools, private schools, um, and any place that has an indoor basketball court. Because of the popularity of the sport and the fact that it has become a developer for soccer, and now U.S. soccer has has become very involved in it, U.S. Soccer Foundation is building um, outdoor fields on the mm-hmm. um, on the on the schools, and um, um, and we are starting to work with the U.S. Soccer Foundation in terms of um, uh, facilitating and determining where um, schools have a need for for that, um, and um, the U.S. Soccer Foundation is working with the New York City Mayor's Fund, which has a um, a uh, a fund to build these um, courts. So now, are are a lot of? Oh, I'm sorry. We're starting with what does it take to convert? Um, a basketball court to a futsal court, do you simply have to put goals down or do you also have to put special lines in or is there any other conversion that you need? There are special lines in a special surface, which is the futsal mm-hmm. surface. Um, it, the cost is about $60,000 for an outdoor court. And the U.S. Soccer Foundation is working with the schools, um, the professional clubs, NYCFC, is involved um, in um, building and the pro, pro in building the the um, uh, the surface and then soccer for success, which is also part of U.S. Soccer, which is the U.S. Soccer specific program, is what we would work with <laughs> to run the program for the community. So it sounds like we're seeing a lot of different organizations come into you. You've mentioned your state association, um, Eastern New York Youth, um, and also U.S. Youth Soccer as a whole, and then U.S. Soccer, the federation, as well as the foundation. Uh, right. So um, is that complicated to, to navigate all that, or does every organization just bring something natural to the table that that's really the best way to get things done? Yeah. It, it can get bureaucratic. Um, <laughs> however, the um, it is the it, it is the foundation that has a um, mandate or a um, grant from the um, city, and then um, we are running um, futsal for Eastern New York Youth Soccer. So basically then the rest of it would be um, us that would work with U.S. Soccer Foundation, the Department of Education, and um, DYCD, which is the Department of Youth um, Services, to um, to get that going. And U.S. Um, Soccer Foundation and us also have to work with the city council and the schools to make sure there's approvals and um, so yes, it takes a while to get it done. And you've mentioned you have programs going other states now, and I've seen 
other states as well uh, popping up with their own programs, and most notably Alaska, where it seems to make a lot of sense to play indoor futsal. Um, uh-huh. So, so when you're working with other states, are you working with the state associations as well there? It depends. Um, okay. We, um, if we're doing an event, then we may be working with, like for example, in LA, the teams did come from the state association that that um, um, played in our event. However, it was run by um, us in LA Galaxy. Um, so it wasn't run under the state in that case. Um, however, it you know, it really depends. In most cases we are um, um, it we when we start programs, we do try to work with the state. Um, it you know, also depends on the governing bodies. For example, if you're in a university it depends. They have their own governing bodies for, mm-hmm. or they have their own um, sports bodies. So it depends on what their affiliation is and whether they're willing to work with, um, be governed also by a third party. And now you've mentioned that this is really giving a lot of opportunities to a lot of people, uh, which you know, I think everyone who loves the sport and. Uh, has the mandate to push it into the grassroots would love. Uh, it also sounds like you've managed to develop some elite players out of out of these programs. Is that right? Oh yeah, we have. We, the the some of the players who have been playing with us for many years have gone on to academies in Spain, in Barcelona, in uh, Portugal, in um, the U.S and specifically in New York with um, the professional teams here, the New York Red Bulls and NYCFC. And then with the university programs, certainly club sports are getting to be um, bigger and bigger these days. Um, You know, how soon do you think it might be that we might see football have as many club teams as, say, ultimate or rugby, which I think of as sort of the biggest of the, the college club sports. I think football has a huge, first of all, it's played 5v5. So it's a, um, you know, um, you really need five to, you know, seven kids on a, players on a team, students on a team. So, um, and for anyone that wants to stay in shape, Football is a combination, really, of of basketball and uh, soccer. It's much faster than soccer. Played on a basketball court. There are many goals scored. So, and it's a fun game to watch. So, um, it's growing like uh, you know. We started off in New York with a handful of kids playing with four teams of uh, 20 kids, and now we have 3,000 younger players and 3,000 older players. So we have 6,000 players playing on the youth level, and um, so I think this is a sport that's just going to catch fire in the the United States. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's, it's it's a great sport. 
And then finally, globally, since you have uh, relationships with Barcelona and with other global teams, and I actually happen to see, uh, if you go to Barcelona, you can't watch La Liga games on TV unless you have a special package, but I was able to watch Barca TV and watch them compete in the UEFA Futsal Cup, which was pretty exciting. Um, one thing I've wondered, you know, we've seen in the last, well, in our lifetimes, uh, beach volleyball has become almost as big and in some ways bigger than indoor volleyball. Do you think there's potential that maybe futsal could at some point be an Olympic sport or be uh, be seen as its own entity like beach volleyball is? Uh, well, futsal already is a World Cup sport. Mm-hmm. So um, we compete in um, – in our own World Cup um, under under FIFA, um, so yes, I definitely see it as becoming an Olympic sport and a NCAA sport. Well, great. Well, is what what's next for you? Where do you uh, where do you go the next next week or or month to uh, to proceed with all these different initiatives? Uh, next is visiting universities. I just came back from Denver and. Um, I, you know, I just see us growing in Miami, um, in Florida, because Florida has a tremendous, first of all, football is the largest game in the world. It's played in, in Italy and Spain. There are five times as many football players as there are soccer players, and soccer is their life. Mm -hmm. So, um, basically, I see this, it's played in, you know, it's huge in Asia, so um, China plays, Korea plays, India plays. Um, it, it's very, very big in Africa, um, in and um, in South America. It's also similar to um, Europe. Everybody plays futsal when they're growing up. So all of the major stores, Ronaldo, Messi, um, and if you look at Ronaldo or Neymar. They both have tattoos of Falcao on their arm because they see him, and Falcao is the best um, football player in the world. They see him as the as their developer. Um, the way that they learned to play um, soccer was through futsal. So it's the, one of the largest sports in the world. It's definitely larger. It's definitely more. There's more people playing. In Brazil and South America and and um, uh, many parts of, of Europe than soccer, um, and I so I see this as a huge sport. All right. Well, thank you so much. Best of luck with your initiatives. And thank um, you. Hope to talk to you again. Thank you thank so you. much. Okay. Bye bye. All right, so our second guest today, please introduce yourself. Hey, it's Jason Longshore uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. I've worked with Soccer in the Streets, long-running nonprofit in the Atlanta area. I worked with them for 10 years. Uh, now I'm actually doing color commentary for Atlanta United um, and Atlanta United too, but I still work with the organization, you know, kind of as an ambassador type of role as much as I can. And so what has Soccer in the Streets been doing? I think you all got some publicity uh, for train station uh, courts, but 
most recently. But the organization's yes. been going on a lot longer than that. So what what are some of the things the organization has done? Yeah, Soccer in the Streets actually started in 1989. It was the community outreach program for the old Atlanta Attack Pro Indoor team that played at mm. the Omni. And the organization far outlasted the team. The team only lasted two years. <laughs> And the organization had really taken root at that point. Uh, Carolyn McKenzie was the founder, and she did a great job of marketing the organization. And, you know, we got to remember it's the early 90s when it, a lot of it was just strictly introducing soccer into inner cities and urban neighborhoods. And really, in the early days, it was lots of camps and clinics and short-term programming. But then you started to see okay, what can you do next? Now that we've introduced it, kids want to play, now what? So the organization went through a shift in the early 2000s, right before I started, and started shifting to year-round programming and tying teaching soccer skills with life skills, things like communication and respect and teamwork, you know, basics, but using soccer in a more intentional way to benefit kids. Then really over that next 10 years, when I was with the organization, we started to see more of a shift to kids growing up in the program and not just being focused on elementary school age, but getting middle school and high school kids who had come through the program and needed a little bit more. So it started to focus on employability. And the idea was we could use soccer as a way to get these kids to become employable young adults. And we could actually plant the original seeds for it through refereeing, through coaching. We would get the older kids involved in refereeing the younger kids' games, the ones who are interested in coaching, get them involved helping out coaching. And now it's been really cool for me to see some of the kids that that I coached back in the day are now coaching the next generation of kids coming through in their neighborhood. And, you know, it's one thing for – for me or you or somebody else to come into a neighborhood like this and work with the kids there. But when it's somebody that they know who is from their neighborhood and they look up to them and they want to be like them, it really takes the mission, you know, a, a much bigger step forward. And now in recent days, you mentioned station soccer. That is really where the organization is kind of taking the next frontier of, actually going into areas, and right now it's it's MARTA train stations, public transit here in the Atlanta area, and building soccer courts, futsal-sized soccer courts that are accessible to everybody. Because as we know, like so often, it's we have the coaches or we have the funding or whatever to go do a program, but you don't have access. You don't have a field. You don't have a space to actually deliver it. This is another way to do it, and it eliminates some of the transportation hurdle. So aside from the uh, the station soccer, uh, what sort of facilities are you using? Is it pretty much anything you can find? You know, a basketball court, uh, a tennis court, um, anything, anything flat that you can put a couple of goals down on? Exactly, it, it's anything and everything. Um, we partner with a lot of schools. Uh, I, mean, I say we. I, I still feel like I, I work there. <laughs> I still feel like you, can, you know, a great you attachment to the program. I mean, it's it's schools, and schools have been a great partner because it eliminates some of the transportation issue. I mean, that's just such a huge hurdle as you start to include more programming is it's just it's not easy for these kids to get around. 
So doing programs after school, you have access to a field or gym or basketball court. That works great. Uh, some communities, the parks and rec departments have been great. YMCAs have been a nice help as well. But it is every program kind of looks unique to that community because in Atlanta, you know, with the, the population of the, the participants of soccer in the streets, you'll get some programs that are 100% refugee. You'll get some programs that are 90% Latino. And you'll get some programs that are, you know, 95 to 100% African-American. And there's different challenges in each one. And each one has different resources to bring to the table, too. So you have the overriding common philosophy, but the actual look and feel of the program might be different from place to place. So in some cases, does it build up into an organized league? Or um, in some places, does it stick with after-school programs? How's, what's the sort of range there? Yeah, in in the perfect world with the schools, and, and I can talk specifically about DeKalb County, uh, where I was pretty heavily involved in getting that program going. We started with one school. It was a, a great partnership with the local YMCA and the principal at the school and a third grade teacher who were willing to go out on a limb and, and help us start an after school program for as many kids as we could handle. And having the school buy-in was great because they used it as that carrot for kids. You know, it was if you, you know, do your homework, you stay out of trouble, you're going to get to play soccer today. And we did that for a year and it was great. The kids loved it. But then they, they wanted to play games. So we looked around the community and there were two other elementary schools nearby. And again, credit to the principal who really went out and talked to the other principals and recruited other schools to say, you can do this too. It's been a huge benefit for us. And we got it going the first semester of the next school year in two other schools. And then by the second semester, we were actually able to set up games between the three schools. So we created an elementary school league in DeKalb County where the kids would play on Fridays and the schools loved it because these are schools that really it was a non-existent PTA. And what started to happen is the parents would come out to watch their kids play a game on Friday because we treated it as, as a big game day. And then the schools and the teachers could talk to the parents. And it really started to, to blossom into something really special. We we're able then to take that to Atlanta public schools and replicate it. And we'd work in different clusters where you'd get, you know, three, four elementary schools close by, have a couple days of practice after school, and then have a game day. You know, and it was a great way for kids who wouldn't normally have access to playing an organized sport to be able to do it at their school and do it free of charge. Um, other sites look maybe a little bit more like a traditional youth soccer club. Uh, College Park on the south side of Atlanta looked like a pretty traditional youth soccer club. We didn't have huge numbers, so we would partner up with other, you know, leagues and clubs nearby. So that it, you know, trade off game days and stuff like that. But you'd have a couple of teams in each age group. And then, you know, I had a team of started with middle school and ended up being high school age guys that it was such a wide range of ages. It was really difficult for us to, to find our way on the youth soccer realm. Um, we did U19 one year and I had 13 to 18 year olds on this team. So it was just such a wide range. We ended up 
as a couple kids aged out, but then wanted to stay involved and wanted to help coach their little brothers who were playing with the younger ages, we actually went to the the local USASA affiliate, the Atlanta District Amateur Soccer League, and did an amateur team that was 16 and up. And that worked great. It became like a senior team. So, you know, what we found was the more we tried to make them all look the same, it didn't work because each one kind of had its own, you know, benefits and challenges and resources. So we would figure out what worked in that community and and make the best soccer experience we could for that community. You know, coincidentally, I'm working on, uh, for the Ranting Soccer Dad Guide to Youth Soccer, where I'm going area by area. I'm doing Georgia now. And so I was able to see that, you know, um, the Georgia Soccer League summaries of things and saw that, yeah, there's a, um, there's a soccer in the streets team listed as Cardston, Cardston mm-hmm. FC that, uh, won Division Three of the U18, uh, in the, yeah, uh, in the, in the fall. So, so yeah, you're able to, to work. Uh, on several levels there. Now, have you started taking this outside Atlanta, or have you started uh, working with other organizations that uh, want to try to do similar programs elsewhere? Where where Soccer in the Streets kind of fell in, I think, probably from a national perspective, back in the, the early days when it was very camp and clinic-based, Soccer in the Streets would facilitate those kind of all over the country, and this is, you know, late 90s, mid-90s. Um, but it's just so hard to do on a national scale. I mean, I, I have so much respect for for a group like America Scores who was able to do it with chapters all over the country because it's so difficult. I mean, we would see the differences from community to community just in the metro Atlanta area. You know, I can't imagine for a group like America Scores how hard it is to replicate programs in D.C. and Boston and Chicago and try to have some continuity between them. So, uh, when I was with Soccer in the Streets, we figured out, you know, that it was best to focus on the Atlanta area. But where we could be consultants or, you know, experts in the field or whatever knowledge we could share, we always tried to do that. And uh, the longtime executive director of the organization, Jill Robbins, uh, has been on the board of Street Football World, which is an international organization for Soccer mm-hmm. for Social Change. Um, she was heavily involved and remains heavily involved with the U.S. Soccer Foundation and the Urban Soccer Symposium that goes on every year. Uh, was one of the, the founding members of that kind of cohort to get things going. So, you know, not so much soccer in the streets with, with chapters all over the country, but I mean, I, I can tell you that I've talked to and helped and given advice to groups and, New Orleans and, and Tuskegee, Alabama, and then all over the state of Georgia and South Carolina. And, you know, just wherever we could be useful with our experience, we tried to share it and, and let groups kind of find their own way in their own community. Because to me, it's just, I think the biggest deal in, in these communities that we're talking about, you know, that are, are generally, you know, economically disadvantaged and, uh, just, you know, it's it's difficult. There's not as many resources to work with. The biggest thing you have to do is earn trust. And when you come in and start dictating, well, it looks like this everywhere else. It has to look like this here. You kind of lose the buy-in and where you can make it authentic to that community. And Clarkson's a great example. It's a refugee community on the east side of Atlanta. That program that now has a team that's, you know, winning lower division classic leagues, 
it started with Friday pickup at the community center on a field that is, I mean, generously maybe about 20% grass. The rest is dirt. <laughs> and it was Friday pickup, show up. We'd just facilitate games, and it evolved to then kids wanted to play organized matches, started teams, and now that group is actually coached by one of the graduates of the program. Uh, so it's been very cool to see that evolution over in Clarkston. And some players, there's one player in particular who went from the Clarkston program to Atlanta United's Academy. Right, and that was something I was going to ask about. Um, it, we look at these programs, uh, first of all, as a way to reach out to the inner city and give people um, just positive activities to, to be involved with. Um, but it seems like we do occasionally find elite players that way as well. So you mentioned um, Atlanta United Academy, and, and where else have you seen some of the players uh, wind up from these programs? Yeah, for a number of years we would see players, you know, kind of find their level and where we could facilitate it. If, if they found their level was a higher level than the team that we were doing in their community, we would try to help find them a club. And sometimes it was going as a guest player with a team in a tournament just because they couldn't commit to training every day and getting to training. That's the biggest problem is, you know, we always look at, okay, how can we get the best players playing? We scholarship them. That's great. It, it solves one problem. But you can scholarship in, in, in the Atlanta area. I'm just I'm kind of giving some examples of clubs. Like if you have a kid in Clarkston and you scholarship him to play, maybe he's not Atlanta United level, but he can play U17, R3PL, and the closest club is 20 miles away. You can scholarship him, but how is he going to get to practice every day? How is he going to be able to get to the matches? Um, he or she, because we've had both. We've had boys and girls who have both been in this situation. It, it's not it's not all solved by the scholarship. And then you get into the situation that, that I learned firsthand coaching a team in classic ball was I had a, a U14 team, the first team that I coached, and – we'd have Saturday morning matches and you'd be looking at the team playing in the first half. Like, why is everybody so sluggish? This is not the kids I know. And you talk to them at halftime and no one had breakfast because there was nothing to eat in the house. So, okay. Then part of your equipment bag becomes boxes of granola bars. You know, you have to, it's, I guess that's why at times it's been frustrating with the whole player development conversation about, it's all about scholarships. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. And if you don't think all the way through, you're, you're wasting the opportunity. You know, you have to have coaches who buy in and understand or team parents or whatever the situation is. It depends. Every situation is different. But you have to understand that, you know, a, a good number of these kids, the scholarship can help, but it doesn't solve all the problems. Um but yeah, we've had we've had players and teams kind of evolve. You know, Clarkston's a good example where kids at the beginning, the best kids would move on to other clubs and play because they really were at a higher level than the team that we had. And then you'd see as the team came together and had some continuity and trained together for for a season or two or three, the team's level would rise. And then you didn't have as many kids looking to play elsewhere or needing to play elsewhere. So for us, you know, the mentality was always 
we want these kids to be successful. And if they can find success through our program, that's great. But if they need, as a soccer player, to move on to another club, it was never an idea to say, well, they're our kids. No, they're kids. And if they move on to another club and play and do well, that's going to be a good benefit for soccer in the streets in the long run. It was never territorial. And so if you're playing on Carson FC and playing in the Athena League, which is the statewide uh, league uh, mm-hmm. for travel soccer, is it still free for those kids? And then how um, how are you able to raise money for that? What we would try to do, and, and it really does depend on the community, some some stayed free just because we knew that was the only way we could actually get the team on the field. And others, we would have a very minimal fee, um, anywhere between 50 to to $100, really just to, again, kind of go back to the bigger picture of teaching responsibility and and those types of things, just trying to get a little skin in the game on it. And I mean, I, I remember doing a team where we had, you know, it was basically five bucks a game. <laughs> and the kids who could come and, and chip in, great. If they could, cool. If not, what was actually one of the, the most, you know, kind of heartwarming things for me about that group, because they all really became close and looked out for one another. There were situations where there were a couple kids that they, they couldn't pay five bucks a game. And, then, and I knew that and the other kids know that. And a couple other kids would come up to me and say, hey, coach, here's 10 bucks. Don't worry about, don't worry about Johnny over here. He's okay. I got him. And they'd start to look out for one another. So you have to supplement it, though. I mean, youth soccer is expensive. It is a business. We all know this. And, you know, we're having to pay for things, you know, more than maybe some clubs would think about, about travel and gas money and lunch when it was a trip that would be, you know, any kind of distance, which at times it would be. Uh, water, whatever you can think of, we'd have to cover it. So. We do different things. I mean, as an organization, we're in a different place than a than a traditional youth soccer club, being a nonprofit. You know, really with that mission of you know using soccer for as a medium to benefit these kids' lives. So we would do lots of external fundraisers. Uh, the organization I wrote grants for a number of years and would bring in grant money. We'd also do fundraisers where we'd have adults playing in you know a seven aside tournament or one fundraiser we did was the black tie soccer game where people would dress in some form of black tie attire and have a fundraising page and they'd raise money to play. And it became a good way to bring the community together and get more kind of advocates for the organization out there and, and raising money and sharing the story. So we'd have to do that to supplement these teams because, you know, the other side of it is you start to learn that you can't, take it to the next level and be volunteer based. It's it's very difficult in in the field that in this field to do it at a high level and hold those standards to be at a high level and re- rely on volunteers because volunteers lives change, you know, you you get a new job, things come up, you can't make it to practice and for these kids continuity and consistency is just so important. When you start going through multiple coaches, you lose that trust. Kids would start to drift away. It wasn't as important. So, you know, we started paying coaches. And with that, though, we were able to then require that all of our coaches and the organization would pay for it 
would start getting licensed. And it started with the national e-license when that came online, was every coach in a soccer industries program had to go national e. And that would be staff coaches and then teachers in the schools. They would, we would pay for them to do it and they would do it. So by doing that, we were able to then increase the standard and increase the level. But again, it's another cost. You have to find the money for it. You have to get creative and we would do that as best we could. And the organization went from 2008, 2009 with a, an overall budget around $150,000, $175,000 and working with three to 400 kids a year to 2017, the organization uh, outside of the, the capital projects was, was bringing in, I want to say, I'm not 100% certain, seven hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars and working with thousands of kids. Mm. So yeah. it's all about that scale, but it takes time to get there. Yeah. So you mentioned grants. Uh where where would you write for a grant? Are these organizations that people in the soccer community would know, like the US Soccer Foundation, uh or Street Soccer USA, or uh, what other some other resources you can tap into? The US Soccer Foundation is a great one and even if you don't receive funding from the U.S. Soccer Foundation, they have a number of different resources that can help an organization who's, who's trying to grow and doing this sort of thing. And even just just calling and asking questions. They they are so helpful to organizations all over the country because so many more are popping up right now, which is great. Um, they do have grant programs. They have grant programs for programs. They have grant programs for fields to build mini fields and I think full-scale fields as well. They also have grant programs for equipment and for lighting. Um, I, they might have some specifically around coaching education. I'm not sure. United Soccer Coaches definitely has grants around coaching education, and that's another mm-hmm. great resource to look at as you're trying to improve the quality of your programs. Uh, but be- Beyond that, I mean, we worked with the Coca-Cola Foundation here in Atlanta, and they were a just outstanding partner in getting things going um, with the school programs and with the teenage-based programs that really fit into their mission. And any big corporation like that has a foundation, and you just have to do the research on what their their mission is, what their goals are, and see if it aligns with you. But the one piece of advice that I learned over you know my time doing fundraising and doing grant writing was you have to know what your program is and don't change it to get a grant. You have to find grants that fit what you're doing because if you start shifting your focus and your mission to, to match a grant, grants aren't forever. You know, grants are generally one year. You might get a multi-year grant depending on the scale of it and the, the funder. But there's no guarantee it continues. So what we found was our our base money, our base funding, our base revenue had to come from things we could control. And a lot of that was fundraising events and, you know, fundraising campaign that our board started because you could project that a lot better. Grants are are almost by, like buying lottery tickets in some ways. You can improve your your chances if you do the networking and you meet and you talk and you listen to what they're looking for too, but you're still basically writing a request and it might be granted, it might not. So you have to 
try to you know, stay true to who you are, raise money in other ways. And the grants are ways to grow or to add on programming as opposed to sustain programming. That's the biggest thing that I learned that I didn't know going into it um, because so many nonprofits rely on grants and it's just the, the way of the world, but they're also so inconsistent that it's hard to plan year to year on getting grant money that you can't control and you don't know if you're going to get it or not. Okay. So it sounds like the program's really, really been going strong though. And with Atlanta United coming in and um, now you mentioned you're an ambassador for Soccer and Streets as well as working for the MLS club in, which is in year two. Um, what sort of impact has, has that had and has Atlanta United uh, been involved? Yeah, they have, and they've been involved from before it was even Atlanta United, before it was a thing. Um, they were great, and you know a lot of that came from the Arthur Blank Foundation first, uh, mm-hmm. the owner of the club, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons. His family foundation is just so influential in the city of Atlanta and does so many good things that are completely unrelated to sports, but they're all they had funded uh, soccer in the streets a, a few different times through Atlanta Falcons Youth Foundation grants before soccer was a thing, and then they were all they were very open as soccer was coming online that it's going to happen. We don't have a timeline yet. We're going to work with you. We want to work with you. We will we will keep you posted. And they did. They were great to it. Um, and then everybody that they've brought in. You know, from Darren Eels, who came out to program sites, met kids, to Carlos Bocanegra, who did the same thing. They play in the fundraising events. They they really put it out there that the organization supports soccer in the streets. And the first station soccer project would not have happened without Atlanta United. And they really put it over the top with their, their involvement in that. And it's just, you know, kind of been a game changer for the organization because, you know, as as hard as the Atlanta Silverbacks worked, you know, in the time that they were here in the North American Soccer League, they were trying to keep the doors open. And that was never a guarantee from year to year. So it's one thing to be able to do that and give some tickets away and things like that, but they couldn't provide funding. You know, they couldn't take it to that next level. It's just they didn't have the resources, whereas Atlanta United does. And they've been so open in doing it at all levels from – Funding to you know helping out with it with soccer industries fundraisers and being involved in them um, to coming out to the sites you know player appearances kids meeting players um, all the way across the board it's been it's been so exciting and then the player that I mentioned who is from Clarkston and playing in Atlanta United's academy we set up as the academy was coming online basically like mini combines. Uh, in a couple different parts of town for kids through the program or other kids that we knew were outside the mainstream. So the academy could take a look. And some of those kids made their way into the academy. And that was very cool to see because this academy, I think it looks a little different than a lot of Major League Soccer academies. You know, you look at the U-17 and U-19 teams, and they're incredibly diverse you know, a, a number of different countries represented of, of kids who have grown up in the Atlanta area. And some found their way to the mainstream soccer organizations, the major clubs. Some didn't. And, you know, that's a, a great credit to Tony Ann and the academy director who 
is, is all about the talent, and he understands that for some of these kids, they're going to have to do a little bit more for that kid to be able to reach their potential because of those challenges that we've talked about. And they've been very cognizant of it and have done a great job. I think then they've done right by the kids. And that's, what's been impressive to me. You know, this is an organization in Atlanta United that has really put its roots down and everybody talks about the big crowds and the, the money they spent on the roster. But the reason it's so successful is all of the, the dirty work they do in the community. They get out there and they get their hands dirty and they they get involved and that's why I think they have the total buy-in from the community at large. So it's it's a funny irony then that you sort of that you know this program that started with an indoor team has now bridged the gap to something far bigger than indoor um than indoor soccer ever could imagine playing all sorts of on all sorts of uh, field surfaces as well. Um actually do you do you have any Indoor soccer programs with boards and walls? Uh, Ooh, not any with boards and walls. No, none of that. Um, we started to do more futsal, and right. I'm a big believer in futsal. I would, for me personally, if if I could start my own program site and, and like do it from scratch and have the resources to do it, I would have the kids 12 and under play futsal and, and strictly play futsal. And that would be the way they develop their technical skills on the early going, playing five aside. I think it is the the best way. And in the United States, with basketball courts everywhere, use them. You can get pop-up futsal goals. I am all about that version of the indoor game as opposed to the old school uh, banging it off the wall looking for the rebound. I was never very good at that. I was more of the – I, at least I thought of myself as a little bit more of a, a passing player. I like the space, so futsal is a little bit more of my game. All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much. And uh, what what would be, to, to close with, what would be um, perhaps the biggest success story you can point to in, in the work that you've seen? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I mean, it, it, honestly, it probably, like, changes as uh you know i hear from different kids that that personally like i had involved you know coaching them or whatever um the most recent one is uh, a girl kiambi who came through the program and it was really tough for kiambi because there weren't many girls in her neighborhood playing uh her little brothers came out and played and she wanted to play and there just wasn't enough girls for teams so she played with the boys you know, as, as long as she could, she played with the boys. She went, she got a referee training and she's refereed. She went and got her coaches training and she coaches and she still coaches now. And in her neighborhood, not many kids go to college. And now she is a senior at Georgia State and she's been selected for a study abroad program to South Africa to study the intersections between race and culture and you know, for somebody that I kind of watched grow up, like, that's a success story to me. It's great to see the kids, like, go on and play on high-level teams and win trophies and, and do that. That's that's awesome and because it means a lot to those kids. But it's the stories like Kiambi and, and others that that I've kind of watched grow up and, and find their path to being successful and and still being involved in the game, too. You know, that's that's the coolest thing about it is, 
soccer is part of Kiambi's life, and it will always will be. Even though she didn't get to play at a high level, she's found her way to, to be part of it and have it benefit her life and to pass that on. And to see other kids that I coach do the same, that's the reward for me. That sounds great. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks, Bo. So that's today's podcast. We've got a couple of updates on the site. I'm still working on the Georgia uh, guide for the Ranting Soccer Dad Guide to Youth Soccer, the area guide. But it's uh, we, we've hit a little bit of a snag because there is a question about a league. I'm hoping to get it resolved. This might go a little faster in the summer when everyone has actually settled on what their leads are going to look like next year. Uh, but that is underway, so please support that at Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash rantingsoccerdad. Please come to the site, rantingsoccerdad.com. I'm going to start re- revving up blog content uh, probably four to five posts a week, so we can keep that going. And thanks, as always, for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Thank you.